Also, Matt, you fucked that up because I was a second away from going. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, dolls and strangers, welcome to the Movie Morgue, your movie autopsy podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And joining us today, writer for N- Nightmare on Film Street and Dorkly, Mateo Guerrero. Oh my god, Annie! Doc! It's me, Mateo, from the support group! Do you remember my little boy Jimmy? Okay. He no. died in that kaleidoscope and accident. Oh, there's so much blood, so many pieces. How are you doing? You coming too? Okay. So, um, we are covering today the 2018 Ari Aster film Hereditary. And spoiler warning, we're gonna get really fucking spoilery. Uh, so let's let's dive right into it. Let's talk about context and what this film is and what we do. So, uh, this is an A twenty four production, and they're a production company I've come to very heavily trust. Uh, I feel like there's almost nothing they've done. I haven't seen their entire film catalog. I'll give them that much, but especially in horror. I feel like everything of theirs that I've seen has been knocked out of the park completely. They did Ex Machina, they did Green Room, they yeah. did Moonlight. Like, uh-huh. you know, they ha- they're they a bit of a powerhouse. Yeah. And they I don't know- put out oh, yeah. so many films where it's like fucking like Bruckheimer or New Line where you're like, oh, it's those guys, whatever. You know, they're not legendary. Yeah. They're- and they also, they put out The Witch uh, a few years ago and then this year they put I'm sorry, out I think you mean The Witch? The Vavitch. The Vavitch. Yes, they put yes. that out too. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. A24, it's a pretty safe bet. Yeah. So, um, I saw this come yeah. up on sure. their list of upcoming films. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then I saw the trailer. Yeah. And that, tra- that trailer scared the shit out of me. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I've, I've been excited for it ever since. I have not looked up anything else about it since then and i went into it blind and <laughs> what about you what about you guys annie um you actually brought the trailer to my attention and i was like uh i'm gonna need to go and watch a horror movie and i i'm admit admittedly like a little bit of a scaredy cat so i was kind of like very i don't know apprehensive of watching this movie and but also, like, weirdly excited, too, because I do like A24. I'm just scared easily, so. And it delivered. <laughs> uh, delivered very, very well. So, um, Matt, how about you? Mr. Horror Review Writer, you? Congratulations, yeah. by the way. Everyone congratulate yeah, Matt. Give him a little round of applause, because oh. I'm actually seriously proud of you, but Why, thank we, you. we are legit proud. Legit proud. I, I look forward <laughs> to disappointing you. It's going to be a fun ride. I I have this is I think the very first horror flick that I've gone in 100% blind on. I didn't see the trailer. I didn't read any synopses. All I heard was everybody and their brother raving about how this was the second coming of the exorcist. And so I just I needed to see it. And so I knew absolutely nothing about this flick ahead of time. 
went into the theater blind. And, uh, well, I can say I'm head over heels for this <laughs> yeah. Uh, this was also Ari Aster's de- uh, feature film debut. Yes, which, it was. What a fucking debut! He made a pact. Oh, yeah. With, he, he made a pact with some sort of demon. Hey, hey, hey. Movie oh, wait, there. we've already said we're doing spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talents to the Conjurer, what? <laughs> no, this is good. So let's actually go ahead and actually get to the review portion of this. And I'm just going to start off. This is an A-plus film, straight up. It is. This is a masterclass of craft. It is a brilliant and tight script. And I think I kind of hate it but in the best possible way. Um, I haven't had this kind of reaction to a film. uh, Well, first of all, I don't think I've been this scared of a film since The Babadook. And I don't think I've been this viscerally repulsed by a film since Requiem for a Dream. And I put it in that same category of this is a masterpiece and I never want to watch it again. And of course, being a film podcaster, I immediately watched it again. And watching it the second time actually does change a lot of things about it, but it's still utterly brilliant. And this is one of my, this is one of my top 10 films of the decade, just straight up. Not like, not even accounting for genre or personal preference. Like this is something special. That's the doc review. Oh, sure. Um, I'm also going to go ahead and give this an A+. I think this is a beautifully crafted film. I'm so excited to see what Ari Aster is going to bring for us after this. Uh, I think it's an, a deeply engrossing film about watching a family come apart, and I also like that he does not shy away from uh, strange and disturbing and also uh, kind of like unanswered question type endings. I really, really like that. This is probably one of my favorite films. Um, I rate this actually above A Serious Man, which is a film that I really like. It's not a horror film, um, but has kind of a similar thing going on Mm. in terms of the ending. Matt, how about you? And, yeah, Matt. I have to give this one an A+. It was everything I like in a horror movie. It was upsetting. The imagery was visceral. It definitely combined real horror and the supernatural horror and blended them together so you never know what was coming or going. And it understands, like, the best parts of the horror movie is just experiencing it. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, spend too much time spelling out its own plot. It will let you put the pieces together or not together, however you choose. And just, you know, makes the abject horror of the situation you know the center of spotlight of the film no so yeah we really like this basically without qualification this is not for the this is not Not for for the the faint of heart this is not no not my my brain was trying to process that phrase it was like not for the faint of stomach that doesn't make any sense not for the faint of stomach This is an upsetting movie, so let's let's get right into the dissection here, and let's get mechanical and see what works so well about this film. And the first thing I want to praise, the absolute first thing I want to praise, is the camera work. Yes. Is The cinematography yeah. of this movie is yeah. brilliant. It's astounding. <laughs> and here's one thing. Master. Uh, I say this after, like, a couple, a couple nights ago, <laughs> having uh, watched a... Pat Oswalt special and that bit about whole you know like all the best films shot by a man 
edited by a woman, which means made by a woman, which, you know, comes comes to mind a lot now that I think about it. It's like, yeah, I see some point to it. But one of the things about this, first of all, the DP deserves all the yes. fucking credit. Yeah. But also, this film is very lightly edited. There's so many yes. long shots. So much is done in camera that... It's, it's very grounded and kind of surreal because that is one thing I think we also expect in the language of film is cutting is a natural part. It's like punctuation. Cutting is when you can breathe or when you can change focus. So when you hold on a single cut for an extended period of time, you know, like 10 seconds plus, I do feel like that is something that makes a modern audience uncomfortable because it's something that we're not used to. Yeah, and I also really like the way that they use the layering of images throughout this film. Like, that happened multiple times, and the way that they layered the images, the specific things that they chose to go with, eyes overlaid over, you know, banal objects, like wide eyes. That was a brilliant editing choice. There's a few um, camera angle changes that take place in the film that I was just... While I was watching this movie, I was absolutely mesmerized by that camera work in the moment. So for those of us who have followed us into this podcast without seeing the film, uh, first of all, I want to describe kind of the general aesthetic of this film and its camera work and shot construction and composition. But the way I have been describing this is this is like if David Fincher and Wes Anderson had a gay baby and that gay baby opened Hellraiser's puzzle box. Does that mm. sound about right? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was what you sent me. And yeah, as I was watching the movie, that came back to me at one point. Actually, at multiple points, really, because of, you know, the way that Aster uses sets. Like, the yeah. the opening uh, part of the film is just with this model house. Like, there's something so deeply disturbing about moving from a model dollhouse to a real set. And I... Uh, if you've seen Wes Anderson, oh yeah, and and, before, and, and that little gaby also, sorry. Oh but no. The, also, yeah, no, that little gaby also really, really loved being John Malkovich. Oh, oh yeah, big time. <laughs> now I just really want to see Wes Anderson's. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh god, that sounds great. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, and there is a great sense of space, also, like. Especially on a second viewing, I got a real sense of that house, and that made it, in a degree, scarier. Like, having that kind of intimacy with it, uh, understanding the spatial relationship, and also allows you to place more details, like um, the fact that the grandma's body is over the parents' bedroom. I initially thought... Yeah, initially I thought it might be over Peter's room, but it's not. It's over the parents' room. There's so much of this movie that is 100% just no flourish editing of just the long shot shot as if it's, you know, totally normal. And then something really fucked up happens and it's like, oh, well, let's turn on the lights and make it go away. And it just keeps on going. The editing, there's the one scene where Tony Collette is trying to convince her husband, who is played by Gabriel Byrne, to come into the room and, and, you know, any other movie that would be the spooky climax it's like oh fast it is to explain that you know things have really hit the fan oh my god but it doesn't every shot no matter how supernatural or horrific 
is just banal. And that, you know, when it's just totally normal life, you kind of, like, lose yourself in that. But when it's the horror, ooh, it just... I think that might be what makes this movie so scary, though, is that interplay between the banal and this truly horrific supernatural storyline, right? Um, we get this, we get sucked into this movie from the beginning, quite literally from that first montage. And, you know, there's yeah. this kind of feeling throughout the movie that this is the real world, the world that the audience inhabits. And it's it's inhabited by some scary, scary things that we do not and cannot understand. And I think that's part yeah. of what makes this film so remarkable. Yeah. Um, Matt, I wanted to turn on a phrase you said real quick uh, because I do feel that's a part of kind of what's special about this movie is you said in a lot of horror movies, it's kind of, you know, you turn the lights on and everything's okay, right? And I feel like mm-hmm. in this movie, it's you turn on the lights and everything is worse. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. In this one, everything just everything escalates in ways that you weren't expecting and you couldn't have expected. It knows that its audience is genre savvy, and instead of playing to those, you know, smarts, it tricks you. It says, you know, I've been setting up going right. Let's go left. Why? Because. Left was an option. It was always an option. You just didn't think we would. Yeah. Oh, um, the other uh, really cool bit of kind of photographic magic I want to point out is the use of tilt-shift photography in this film was brilliant. Um, there were a lot of really uh. long shots that used tilt-shift, which is... Correct me if I'm wrong. There's going to be a photographer in the comments that's going to tell me I'm absolutely wrong. And I accept that you're right and you know it more than I do. But in my understanding, it's using a very narrow depth of focus uh, to simulate the effects of trying to photograph something very small on a very large scale. And it's something that you can use to shoot cities or woods or anything. And it gives them the impression, because of our understanding of the visual language of how cameras work or typically do work, the, the objects in place are very small. So there are many shots that make the house look like a dollhouse, even though it is live photography of an actual location. Almost all of those establishing shots are just miniatures, or they feel like miniatures, like you just said. You know, another film that used this to great effect was uh, Game Night. I caught that on Netflix, or you know, Redbox the other day, and all of their establishing shots, they make it look like they're, everything's made out of game pieces just by that same sort That's of cool. photography. Yeah, but it's that kind of yeah. seamless blending between the real world and kind of like the world of dolls, like things that are manipulated from the outside that have very little will and control. Like there's this feeling that something has been going on in this family, even from that beginning shot. And I think that's also what I really admire about Astor's work in this movie is his sense of economy. Everything in this movie has its place and is doing something that articulates with something else. Mm -hmm. Nothing is excess. um, Nothing is, you know, like really deep exposition or anything like that. It all articulates together so beautifully and perfectly. And that's just... Yeah, that takes an an economy of foresight that, man, <laughs> that's genius. 
He does yeah. so much with this film. It's frightening. And I think I, I was talking about a place with the genre savviness. All the information that we're given doesn't explain the plot. It only explains the people and makes us feel their pain and their horror more. And so we can understand them better when all the awful things that happen in this film and so many awful things happen, well, you know, just tear them apart. And it's like we we get a better understanding of how it's impacting them, how they're reacting to it, and, you know, how this, this you know, final act fits into their story of their lives. Whereas everything you need to know for the plot, you're shown. And there's very little explanation given yeah. in the entire I do film. feel like maybe the ending monologue was a little too on the nose, but also it fits in... It doesn't break the fiction. It's not like... Uh, it's not like, you know, a closing speech or anything. It's something that makes sense to be said to Peter slash Paymon at the end of the film. So I'm a little conflicted about that particular point, since we're moving on to the scripting. And I think that's fine. I, I sort of took that to be Paimon's apotheosis moment. And so I, I, I don't know, I kind of rolled with it. Then again, I was very entranced with this movie, so I, I was like, whoa. I was entranced too, and it did pull me out slightly... Um, Because one of the things I really appreciated about this during my first run through was not understanding what was going on. Because a lot of films... Okay, I think the greatest sin of modern horror is the kind of expanded universe trolling. This idea that, no, the systems just have to make sense. And so we have to give the audience enough clues for it to make sense so that they understand that it's not nonsensical. You're talking about Cabin in the Woods. No, I'm not talking about Cabin in the Woods. I'm not talking about okay. Cabin in the Woods. Okay. Um, the greatest offender, I think, actually, in this category was a film called, I think, Lights Out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which yeah. was based on a short. Gorilla Radio? No. Turn that shit off? <laughs> nah, 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 nah. But, um, no, it was based on a short film. And the short film was actually quite terrifying. It was this short where a woman was pursued by a ghost that only existed when the lights were off. And, you know, it had the ambiguous ending. But... When they they got the original guy to do it, and I'm really happy for him, and I'm glad it did well. I just don't think it stood up as a feature film for these kind of plotting reasons. But because they had a feature-length time to fill out, they gave us the backstory, and they explained who this ghost was. And it was the ghost of a girl who had some kind of sunlight allergy, who was psychically bonded to the mother. And, so, and when it comes down to it, when you look at it, it's like, this really takes away from the yeah. film, because when you look at it, it's like, yeah, this is the story about the ghost of an X-Man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there's a... In the upcoming oh. Halloween reboot, you know, Danny McBride is doing away with pretty much all established Halloween lore, except from the you know very first movie. And so, you know, as part of the changes in the film, it's like, oh, Lois Strode's actually Michael Myers' sister. That's why he wants to kill her. He's a family uh. Which, you know, okay. Like, but that's the thing that they established later on in the movies, and it's just its own deal. And Danny McBride's like, you know, we're going to get rid of all that. Like, all this stuff you added to the film is like, it makes him less scary. He's not going to fucking kill me. I'm not his I mean, brother. Con- and like, yeah. Consider the I'm way we look at that. the xenomorph, one of the queens, if you would, of horror. And when when we first watch that film, it is terrifying. But by the time we get through Aliens and then all the fucking sequels, now we know the rules of Aliens. We know they have caustic blood. We know they're 
impervious to basically the small arms. We know how they slid the move. So when you have all that information, you go, oh, well, you should react by doing this. You start, there starts to be a rational reaction and being understood that takes Mm -hmm. away from the horror and it makes it look less like our protagonists are in some kind of uncontrollable, dreadful situation and more that they're just being idiots. Well, and that also, I think this this is something that we've talked about quite a bit with the Star Wars universe and this idea of canonicity and people being obsessed with the canon. One of my theories about why people are obsessed with canons and why this backstory stuff keeps happening in horror in particular is because people desire control. They want control over the genre, control through gaining knowledge, right? And one of the cool things that Hereditary does is it tells the audience that they are not in control uh, and that they can't be. They don't have the knowledge. There is stuff that is outside of the realm of our grasp. And I think that's, that's really remarkable and exciting. And I think it seemed like, you know, the audience reaction to this movie and the critical reaction have been fairly the same. People are very, very excited by this movie. So I think that should be, you know, kind of a message to people who are making horror. Like, maybe this whole canon thing that we've been doing, maybe audiences are tired of it and don't want it. Well, some people are reacting positively to it, but I think the average audience rating for this movie on Rotten Tomatoes is a D-. minus. Really? Yeah. It's really unpopular with the popcorn horror crowd. And I completely understand that. I just think y'all be fools. Because uh, he- here's the thing. Um, I th- I think when it- this is, I think, one of the first one. I think true horror mm-hmm. is actually a very rare breed. And we don't yeah. actually like real horror the same way we don't like real violence. Uh, you know, I talk about this a lot when it comes to violence is we love guns and we love ammo and we love elaborate sword fighters with like wushu flying flips and stuff, but we hate to see someone in pain. We hate consequence. So I feel like as a modern, especially with these giant franchises like Annabelle and fucking paranormal activity and like, you know, saw five through eight or nine or whatever the fuck they're up to right now is we've been trained to have this very controlled and comfortable environment in which we experience very superficial horror. Jump scares, body horror, stuff like that. And when I watched this film the second time, it actually wasn't scary in a certain degree. Uh, Because, like, a big part of the kind of visceral reaction to it was this apprehension and this uncertainty about the future, not knowing how this film was going to end. Knowing how it ends made it completely bearable for a second to watch. But what is left is like this dread, this existential slow burn of horror. And I think that mm-hmm. like horror, popcorn horror is popcorn horror for a reason. It's this kind of cheap visceral thrill. It's, you know, oh, you know, you take your steady girl there and you have her flinch into your arms and you feel like a big strong man. But it's this controlled and safe environment still. It's in a way, kind of juvenile. Like, you know how much of the discourse and, like, the kind of imagination about the horror film is like, oh, sneaking into an R-rated movie, sneaking into a PG-13 movie. It's like, you know, this idea of it being taboo, but also something that's, in a way, kind of wholesome. Yeah, I do think, though, Mm -hmm. that we have to be cautious of terming these sort of um, 
you know, like things like Annabelle and, and stuff like that as juvenile. I understand that the discourse surrounding them sometimes can be very much related to like high school life and, and all that stuff. But I'm very cautious of that too. Like I think, Matt, now that you've pointed this out about the audience score, because the audience that I was, I don't know, in the theater with uh, responded to this movie very positively. So I think this is probably about different publics. And, you know, I think it, it can be hard for us to say, like, well, all people are, you know, looking for this or, or no one's looking for this. But I think this appealed to a public that was more interested in true horror. So that does seem to be, like, there does seem to be a public out there that wants mm-hmm. that. As opposed to just Saw 14, oh, for sure. right? Um, well, apparently this is A24's biggest opening ever. Yeah. From what I've read. Um, however, really? it is still an A24 opening, so it is smaller than a lot of these other films, like especially like these Blumhouse films that do very well. Um, one thing, though, I think that's been interesting in the discourse that I've seen yeah, is... Um, I and I've heard this in some of the comments coming out of the theater is people are asking each other if they are scared. And I think part of this is this kind of signaling of, you know, I, I, I do think part of the way we talk about horror films is we like to rate them by their scariness. And by claiming mm-hmm. that we aren't scared of something, it's kind of like, look at me, I'm a big strong man kind of deal. Where you're like, ah, oh, no, nah, that didn't get me at all. Mm. And also, there is a vulnerability in admitting that you are frightened of a thing. And this doesn't have, like, you can't say, like, oh, this scene was awesome. This scene was cool. When he breaks through the wall and chops her with a machete, that's so fucking cool. You don't have that to grasp onto. So I feel like you are kind of left with nothing but the horror and the dread. And to say, like... I was scared of this, I think is actually a very vulnerable thing for a member of a general audience, especially in this modern understanding and paradigm of horror to say is it, it because what one of the things this film does look at is stuff like mental illness, dementia, um, you know, inevitability. It is actually a hugely existential film. And so like I've mm-hmm. the entire audience in my second showing the entire which I think was more interesting for me to study from a uh, audience perspective because I could spend a little bit more of my attention on the audience. But when we hear Charlie's click in uh, in Annie's car, that by the way, that one's going to be confusing for this film because our protagonist is named Annie, not Anne, Annie. So we might mix it up. But in the mother's car, there is the click, and she flinches and like slams on the brakes, basically. The entire audience in my second showing flinched. They mm-hmm. they just sucked in the gas. I could hear it from all around me. Just, <gasps> and yet at the end of it, after that like visceral reaction, at the end of the film, as I'm walking out, I'm in the back of the halls going around the theater, and I'm hearing people saying like, were you scared? I wasn't scared. So I do think part of it is this kind of cultural mm. machismo we have around horror and being scared and frightened. Mm-hmm. It's it's really interesting because hmm. There's different flavors of horror and, you know, 
there's you know most of not, yeah i'd say most of them are valid i you know i've got i'm a bit of a horror snob in some ways but i definitely love some of the down and dirty stuff but this movie nothing about it is actually une- no how do i even phrase this nothing in this film is based in anything but the sort of horrors that we don't want to confront there's you know the guilt of you know the you know the uh, what's his name peter peter the son peter gets into an accident and is indirectly you know culpable in the death of his sister and from that point forward you can interpret you know it's a very hard line it's not a metaphor this movie is very literal and all the bad things that happen but all those bad things that happen are remixes of real things so everything that he happens and all the guilt and all the shock and all of the self-disgust and shame that comes with that it just reads throughout the character and everyone else's you know visceral reactions and fears of you know the slow mental decline of you know family members and not being sure what's you know what's a nightmare what isn't a nightmare the things you're capable of doing that you you know honestly don't believe you are but you have firsthand evidence that yes you you did that it's you know and they just add the veil of horror to this to make it you know make you confront it so in normally you want audience or audiences want to be like oh no there's a witch chasing me versus the idea of oh no everyone i know will die and most of them will die badly and i might have yeah. play a part yeah in that. um yeah and then you just have a lie down and so you know, yeah. matt um, can we ask you then um is this actually horror is hereditary oh, is horror it's just a different read of this it. is a very old school horror in yeah. my eyes um yeah. this i think really doesn't compare to anything that comes out really in the last 10 20 years um what this relates to me most i think is like some very old-fashioned horror stuff like rosemary's baby or the exorcist the, the innocence uh, as well yeah, yeah the, the innocence um like even the original halloween i think has more in common with this film than it does with some of its later incarnations uh because part of what I think defines a lot of that is they didn't have a lot of the technology or a lot of the tricks to make this really supernatural separated horror. So they invoked a lot of very specific things that were realistic and very constrained. Uh, Because this is straight up a demonic possession movie. We don't get those really. Even like the biggest thing I can think of is like Insidious, which is like, yeah, it's demonic possession, but also you've got like that fucking key-fingered lady, or you've got fucking Darth Maul in the dreamscape verse. So, like, it's not subtle. It's not restrained. It's not something that moves in the background or in the shadows of real life, which is what this film does. And that, I think, it evokes something very old. You know... This is unnecessary. <laughs> long pause, so That's fine. You should probably cut that all out. It's it's okay. I pause yeah, too long. Sometimes you're just thinking. Yeah. I'm just talking. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm just going to summarize my thought before yeah. I try and actually formulate it. Is the I think that we 
there's really good horror being made these days. However, what you know, what this movie pulls off is, hmm. Fuck. Okay. It's a matter of how daring you're willing to be, and right now we are in a horror renaissance of people willing to dare. And the old school filmmakers who used to do this stuff used to, and I'm going to say this all in again in a minute, so God help me. Um, old school filmmakers, you know, there's plenty of trash that just hasn't made its way, you know, into the future. But, you know, what they recognized back then, and people are still recognizing to this day, is that horror doesn't have to be a... Yeah, horror does not have to be a haunted house full of, you know, monsters that jump out at you. You know, that's one thing. But then there's also the horror of, and I'm definitely going to say this because it sounds good. There's also the horror of not looking in the rearview mirror because you know what's there, but you oh, can't that bear was to see it. Brilliant. I want to actually specifically compliment two sequences. There, there, there's so many sequences I could gush about in this film, but... One of the most striking for me is the entire scene after Charlie's death. Oh, yeah. Because we hold for so, so long on, on in two phases. In two phases. First, it takes us, what, like three to five minutes before we even confront, we confirm her death? Yeah. I mean, we know, oh, but we don't confirm. We don't look it. into the back seat. And there's there's like a 40-second shot just holding on Alex Wolf's face as a tear rolls down his cheek as he refuses to look in the rearview mirror. It's just haunting. And once we get through that, we spend like another 10 minutes where we skip ahead to the funeral and the uncertainty and what's tearing me apart inside is that I don't know how they reacted. I don't know if they hate him. I don't know how he's doing. I don't know how anyone has reacted and what these family relationships are anymore. And it's like 10 minutes before yeah. you even touch on that. And it's just, it, it, it's heart-wrenching and terrifying. But I think, though, the other sequence that specifically I want to call into is when he's in class and he's having these hallucinations and he's freaking out. And he sees a rearview mirror in his peripheral vision. Oh, yeah, oh, that was... Oh, that just gets me. <laughs> Perfection. Ah. Uh. The audio, the audio on the actual accident scene just messed me up. Something fierce. I've seen some reviews afterwards and people keep talking about that scene and that scene without going into spoiler town. And I'm pretty sure they're not talking about that for me. They're not talking about the accident scene. But for me, it was just the, the sounds of Peter freaking out in the front seat trying to console his sister that they're going to get to the hospital really soon while he's stoned out of his mind. And she's in the backseat just desperately trying to breathe. And, like, her breaths get more and more labored as, you know, her airways closes even more. And then you just hear the thwunk oh, God. of her head hitting the pole. And then silence. All those noises that were happening before are gone. You don't you don't know what happened. You're like, oh, I mean, you know exactly what happened. That's the thing. You know exactly what happened, but you haven't had it confirmed for you. You don't. You haven't seen it, but you can hear the absence, and it just 
wrecks me. Then that thwunk just, it lingers in my head, you know, (laughs) to this very day. Some say you can still hear it to this day. Um, Actually, here's a thought. I want to check with you guys and see if this is accurate, but I feel like the shot of her head on the roadside is one of the shortest shots in the film. Um, I think there's some transition establishing shots that are shorter. Possibly, but I I, I think of those that convey meaning or narrative beats, yes, it is one yeah. of the shortest because yes, this film sure. is very casually, or I, I don't want to say casually paced, it's very controlled in its pacing. Um. Yes. Let's actually, hmm, let's actually talk about performances for a little bit because we, we have gotten a little bit into the deep end. And I do want to go back to kind of a little bit of mechanical praise here because I think these were standout performances everywhere. Um, let's let's yes. actually start with you guys. Let's um, Matt. I want to ask you who do you think is a standout in this film and kind of why, and elaborate on that a little bit if you would. Hmm. I mean, the obvious answer is Tony Collette. Killed she... it. She. Yeah. She has so many layers in this film. It's helped by the script, obviously, but she sells it in her face. No. Um, she specifically, to me, evokes, um, like, the mother in uh, The Babadook. Uh, like, when she kind of goes mm. monstrous to a degree... Like, you, you see, you follow her throughout the film, and she's arguably the main character for maybe, like, 70% of the film. It depends, kind of how you define it and it shifts and arguably you could say that there is no main character to this film but uh she is our perspective character for a lot of things and you see her be kind of frazzled and put under and put upon by these just awful circumstances and when she there are times when she's actually i'm trying to remember the sequence now um does she have her dream before or after she shouts at peter downstairs I'm trying to remember. I think it's after. Mm. I think it's after. Because, y- yeah. Because you have yeah. this situation where she's like screaming at her son. She's this overbearing mother. And you also get a sense that she's becoming her mother. There, it, We never meet her mother on screen. But you get that vibe. You immediately get that vibe. And she can be terrifying. Yeah. and But she can also be so vulnerable and scared. Uh, particularly when she drops the truth bomb in the dream within a dream. I never wanted to have you. The look on her face when she puts her hand over her mouth and she cannot believe the thing she said. She is going through so much in this film. And it's awful. And yes. actually, I want to ask you guys, what do you think is the expression on her face when we look up at her, her and see her sawing? You know, I can't. I can't honestly say. I would say that if there's a central motif of this film... It's the eyes that refuse to look or the eyes that refuse to look away. And that's Tony Collette's eyes in the final, her final scene with a head are the eyes that refuse to look away. Yeah, and I think that even matches up with that drawing, right? Charlie's little mm-hmm. drawing with the eyes crossed out. Um, uh, yeah, I... I don't know if we can discern what that emotion is. I mean, and trying to figure it out, too, becomes this thing where it's you end up trying to figure out the plot, right? Like, is Annie still in there? Is she not? 
I don't know. Yeah. And in that moment, I, you and I talked about this a tiny bit after I saw it. And you talked about the idea of uncorking, like almost like uncorking a wine bottle. And that's really what I took that scene to be like the presence, like Annie's presence has left this body and it's a demonic presence or some other presence that has taken up residence in this body but that's also a personal theory about what's going on so i think there's two kind of literal possible reads that can be done i'm sure there's more but this is what pops into my mind is i can see it being one of two things uh one is that this is paymon gazing through her eyes and staring at the object of his desire and just grim determination as he saws off his own head that's one possibility Mm -hmm. The other possibility is that that is the last vestige of Annie left staring at her son and just willing for him to get away or oh, just like apo- just like apologizing. The other possibility is that we're seeing what's left of her pleading or staring and willing him to escape or something, but just apologizing and being f- full of regret but unable to stop what she's doing is this idea of having something grappling you and having your actions feel, um, how you say, inevitable and inexorable, but wishing to change them anyways. Yeah, and that's actually something that Matt and I were just talking about. We were, um, we talked about this a tiny bit, about this whole idea in this movie that, um, you know, people have a very limited will, and that the events that take place in this movie are unavoidable. And that's part of the root of the horror in Hereditary is this idea that as humans, um, you have a will and you have certain choices that you can make. But your choices are circumscribed by the choices that people made before you. Mm-hmm. And uh, this movie is very much about that. Inevitability is something really horrific and scary. Yeah, the ties of family can tear you down sometimes, too. Yeah. That's, you know, where this comes from. Um, Oh, yeah. Going back to performances for a minute, um, I think Alex Wolf was very commendable, though it's a little hard, I think, to really call out standout moments besides maybe the car sequence. Uh, Because a lot of the range of the character is that of, you know, your typical high school kid. So it's a little difficult to come compliment the nuance on that but i do want to compliment a couple um particular things the tear in the car is just beautiful and it's held for so long i don't think there's any way that that isn't you know an actor induced tear i'm i'm not up on my acting methodology but maybe i'm wrong but it, it felt real to me you just gotta poke him in the nose yeah no no they, they just they have a really long hold on you and then they slowly <laughs> blow air in your eye to make you cry that that's the real secret to acting um the other is uh, when he's possessed in the classroom the second time and he raises his hand and you see his face contorted and his lip is pulled back. Now, either he has this insane degree of muscular control in the face, which is possible, uh, or like the, the lip is kind of taped up into itself. It's not clear which it is, but either way, it's effective and it's kind of horrifying. Like, his expression when he does that, he, he, he looks so strained and stressed out. On the whole, he had a fantastic performance. Um, but who I kind of, who I think is actually 
an incredible breakout performance in this is uh, Millie Shapiro as Charlie. She yeah. is terrifying. I mean, I've never and... seen anyone perform with ants that well, you know? <laughs> yeah. Two, two things in film, never work with kids or ants. <laughs> um, oh god there's so many ants in this movie so yeah. many ants do you, do you have a thing for ants oh. Matt is that what I'm hearing yeah Millie Shapiro does an amazing job as a creepy kid and she really sells the just of that kid um, but I do I think that the interplay between the family members like kudos to the casting director because mm-hmm. The way that they all work together in this film, these people, they seem like a family that a lot of people who live in the suburbs know. You know these people. They're the family that's had the family tragedy that's, go, that's gone on. And not just one tragedy, but a couple. The people who, you know, you're having coffee with at lunch and they tell you, I just, sometimes I just feel like we're cursed. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, again, that groundedness in reality and and that feeling that these people really are a family I think that is remarkable I think also what I think is commendable yeah for sure is this does feel like a race blind casting casting and maybe I'm reading too much into things but just specifically Peter is that bit browner than everyone else that it feels like if I were being really anal about be like are they related really and it's not even part of the story it's just, I feel like, and again, maybe I am reading too much into things, but it feels like that there is reason enough to go, maybe from a strictly technical aesthetic point of view, maybe they're not the right actors for each other. But from a performance review, they, that was just first priority. Because when you, when you look at the cast standing in a line, you might go, is he supposed to be the adopted son? Is that part of this freaky weirdness? But, you know, she explicitly did give birth to him, and it's not an issue it's not part of the story so i think that is like from my understanding of how this went down that seems brilliant honestly for me like it i and i know we should be congratulating people for doing the bare minimum but so few people do that i do think it is worth calling attention to and you know if the casting director hears and says actually no there's that's not the case then feel free to contact us and correct us we we love your work by the way we really liked the mole on his face, and that is why he was cast. We needed someone with that mole in this specific <laughs> configuration. Actually, speaking of the mole, I actually, on my second watching, um, I oh actually, like, this is this is how this movie trains you to look for detail, and I love it, is I actually paid attention to the reflection because I wanted to see if the mole changed sides. Uh-huh. I don't think it oh, does. Yeah. Like I lost I lost track. Seriously? But that's the kind of paranoia oh, wow. and level of detail I start looking for in this huh. movie. I I think that's huh. understandable. It's like the idea of the upside uh, down it's... world, which is an actual concept that's been in art history for hundreds of years. Um but the idea of an inverted world, a world where everything is upside down, where morality is inverted, um and things don't make sense. So I could see you yeah, light, searching for a that. light world and a dark world that was invented in what, ninety four by Nintendo for Legend of Zelda? What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly when that concept came about. Nineteen ninety four. Um excuse me, I believe it was nineteen ninety eight in Silent Hill. Obviously. Duh. <laughs> um but no, she does so much. And I actually want to talk about also the character and kind of how she's portrayed both in the film and in the 
how do you say in the kind of extended media and the marketing because i wasn't yeah one thing that i think is really brilliant about the marketing is almost nothing in the trailer is from beyond the first 30 minutes of the film and so the impression that we get from the marketing yeah there's basically the shot of her like slamming her head against the attic door yeah. and the shots of peter in the mirror those are basically the only shots that are from later in the film so we're led to believe that she's a much bigger That's part it. of the film than she is. And she is a big part of this film. It's just that her absence is more notable than her presence. Um, but also in that, the way she's framed and the shots they chose for the trailer do not show off certain designs of her character design. And uh, Annie, I think I want you to bring this one up because coming from me, it sounds really creepy. Um, yeah, so in terms of her design, like as a character, she's kind of like this tween girl who is sort of blossoming. Like she has boobs, but she's clearly trying to keep them under wraps. And so she's wearing these large garments. Like she's got a big hoodie. She has big fuzzy sweaters. So we get this real sense from her character design that she's sort of this character that's on the cusp of something, on the cusp of puberty, um, like having just crossed that line a little bit. In real life, um, you know, this actress is not as, as busty as she appears to be in the film. And so I think they really are playing with this whole idea of crossing over into puberty um, for the character design. It was just something that randomly came up, and the large garments that she was wearing, too, that kind of made me think of that. Yeah. I, I think there's also... I, I think this is part of why it was so jarring, why this stood out so much to me, um, is also it's kind of almost directly contrasting with a lot of her portrayal, mm -hmm. because she is still, in many ways, very childlike. Um, particularly, when you look at her illustrations, her drawings... And also you look at how she interacts with Peter. She's definitely stunted in some way. Um, because, you know, she's 13. She's too young to be at that party, sure. But she's not. she behaves more like she's seven. She's like, I don't know anyone here. They don't give cake to just anyone. Yeah, she's definitely... I want to go home, you know? The character is definitely developmentally disabled in some way or another, and they don't spell it out. And I think... Oh, God damn it. There's just so much in this fucking movie that works and does well. Because it's established that Tony Collette tried to give herself a miscarriage with her first son, or for her first child, and she did so many things to stunt his growth and it didn't work. And it's like, there's a strong possibility that he she did the exact same thing to her second child, but succeeded. That's possible. I think also, too, the reason why this movie is kind of hard to sort out in places is because there is that ambiguity. Like, there are questions circulating right now, I know, on the Reddit threads for this movie as to whether Charlie was ever a fully realized personality. So, you know, like, part of what we were saying before about mental health ideas and demon possession, there's this idea going around that actually Paimon had been in Charlie from the beginning. Like, the first time that we're introduced to her, she makes her little clucking sound. And um, that seems to be an indicator of when Paimon inhabits a body. And, and so there is this question of, you know, like, is this fully her inside there, too? So that adds an additional layer of complexity onto any discussion of her mental issues. Okay. 
so I actually want to ask, I actually want to ask, um, what, what do you guys think Charlie was there to begin with as an independent entity? Because I have some of, some of my own thoughts on this and how this develops, but I'm kind of curious how we're collectively reading this as a podcast at the moment. Matt? Um, it's a, that's a tough question, especially since we're talking about made-up land. But, but... The interpretation I took from this film that I don't necessarily think is the correct one, it's just how I feel, it's all riffing on the whole hereditary idea, and that is, there's no, like, you know, like, oh, he's hereditarily good at math or something like that. It's all, yeah, your liver is two sizes too small thanks to Grandma Burgess. And I, I find the idea that in order to create a vessel for a demon you have to basically mess things up enough including you know genetics and all of those like yeah basically just the idea that charlie could be warped not necessarily just by the genetic details of her bloodline but also like oh yeah this is a demon baby and that's you know the idea that they've crowned a king of hell, but it doesn't express itself as a king of hell. It's a, you put a goldfish into, like, you know, in a shot glass, and it only ever got that big. And therefore, it never developed right. And all of the ideas that this is Charlie and Paymon are the same thing, and they're not actually going to yeah. get um, much more There was more actually some detail uh, in the book prop. Uh, the page on Paimon specifically, and it, it was very difficult to catch even on my second viewing. Um, but at the bottom of the page, it says something about uh, Paimon being capricious and vindictive in a female host. So that's part of it. Um, Annie, what, what was your read? What was my reaction to it? Um, so I think that... Uh, personally, I think that Paimon inhabited Charlie's body when... Uh, the grandmother began breastfeeding her. Oh God. Yeah. And, um, they, there's a kind of, because that happened at such a young age, there's a kind of fusion of these two psyches into one. And so, yeah, they need a male host cause that's what the demon wants. Um, but Charlie's persona and personality I don't know can ever be fully separated from Paimon's so like I don't know that you can have one without the other so I think that's why we do get this kind of like otherworldly look about her she's also constantly eating chocolate which is this very decadent food too which um demons are kind of all about decadence if you know anything about um demonology or demonic histories um so that was kind of what I thought yeah. was going on um i here's here's the thing that i think is weird um i do think charlie does exist um but with a caveat is that charlie does not exist without paimon i think paimon was introduced at such a young age that charlie does not exist in a state without the influence of paimon and i think What's kind of telling is 
the the monologue at the end. It says, Charlie, it's okay. You are Paimon. And I think part of this is, and it's something that you would explore if you were doing this as like part of a series or if this was like a longer, or like a novel about this kind of possession where you really explore the mechanics of it. This idea that the demon is limited somewhat by its form or that it acclimates a certain way to being in a certain type of vessel. So it's like, you know, it, like you get that a lot of that in like reincarnation stories where it's like, oh, we must awaken you to your previous memories. You don't like come in. It's not like, you know, look who's talking where you have this full adult intelligence in a baby's body. So I think then that uh, to a degree, Paymon has been shaped by Charlie, but Charlie has been mostly displaced by Paymon because here... How, how do I say this? This is going to be very... Con I, I think this might be a little controversial to say. And... Very well! No. Yes. Um, but I think... What makes us unique and individual humans' experiences... What, what makes us unique and individual people... Is our experiences and how we react and grow to stimuli. So, in a weird way... And this is, like... This is probably going to, like, edge a little bit too close to, like, pro-life, pro-choice debate than I'd like, is that Charlie wasn't enough of a person to have been a unique entity before Paimon subsumed her. This is, like, the sort of movie talk I tend to avoid, because, you know, theories are fun and theories are grand, but eventually you get into kind of a too weird territory and away from the film and more about what it makes you think of because as you're speaking I'm like maybe just maybe Tony Collette was Paimon and she didn't realize it I mean it could work because you're talking about like capriciousness and all that jazz and as the movie progresses we slowly lose sympathy for her as and that's you know masterful in its own right but it's like, that's a possibility, but, like, that's only, you know, there's only so much you can say about that interpretation of the film, but it doesn't necessarily broker more conversation outside of that. You know this what was, I mean? This was the kind of stuff that I was talking about in terms of canonicity. Like, I think mm -hmm. it, this film has provoked a lot of these discussions to try and flesh out some of the lore that we see in the film. Yeah. So, like, and ultimately, I'm that's not their aim. Yeah, I don't know if it is their aim, Matt. Yeah, like, I would agree with that. Um, and I think, too, that there are a lot of personal interpretations of the film. So, like, for instance, at the ending, there's actually two demons who typically accompany Paimon as, like, kind of servants. And that was what I assumed had gone into Annie and the grandmother, that they had also been partly displaced, potentially, by those servant demons. But, um, I mean, that's an extra textual read. And I, I think this movie enables that. But there's other stuff to talk about, too, like Annie's artwork. Um, okay, we can talk about the artwork. I just do want to say one last thing okay. about the Charlie connection there. Because that does... He, I'm trying to avoid saying here the, here's the thing. I, I know I say that so much. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... What I'm thinking, though, is that the point, as much as I do kind of enjoy these mechanical discussions and this kind of theorizing and theory crafting about this, ultimately, though, it does, it is somewhat irrelevant, though, because 
everyone in the family does have their personal relationship to Charlie. And whether Charlie is Charlie or Charlie is Paymon in the guise or the name of Charlie doesn't matter. The thing that is attacking them, this malevolent force, is still their daughter and sister. And that's part of the horror of it is before we really get into the demonic possession stuff, the way this film kind of looks like it's playing out is they're haunted by Charlie. And Charlie is a terrifying specter because Charlie is Paymon. It's, oh, see, this is the part where the drama folks will say, this isn't a horror movie. It's, it's you know, a meditation it's just a drama on grief. Because, yeah. well, because, it yeah, is, well, what's haunting them war. is, it's not just, you know, like, oh, they're being haunted by a spirit. They're literally being haunted by everything that Charlie meant to them. Yes, and for, yes. you know, for Peter, that is a hell of a lot of guilt and horror and same you know for annie it's the daughter she never connected with and felt like she was forced to have and really belonged to her mother more and it's just all you know this this is the sort of material that horror lets you access because you're given free license to go into the dark corners of the world and the universe and what it means and there's plenty of darkness to explore and, you know, horror lets you do it. I think this is kind of that same movement where in any medium, there is a sense of literary gatekeeping. Where we look, especially like, when I say the word genre fiction, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where oh it's like, God. oh, no, this is, <laughs> yeah. really in, this is really insightful and interesting and says a lot of great social commentary for a science fiction story. Now, if this was written about someone who lived in an uh, apartment in London, oh my god, this would be brilliant. But it's written about space wizards, so we don't give a crap, you know? And I, I, I hate that. I, I absolutely hate that. But I think that is why we have this, that's where we have this kind of ascension out of horror, where it's like, yes, this was made as horror, but we don't want to give recognition to a horror film. So is there a way we can reclassify it where we can give it this serious literary discussion without having to cop to the fact that, you know, horror or genre fiction in general can be literary? Oh, yes, very cool. Well, yes, Doc, my good man. You see, we call that a, a supernatural thrill. <laughs> call this one a fantastical <laughs> drama, you see. <laughs> We're done here. <laughs> so let's go back to her art, because... I hate her art. Oh my god. It's it's perverse. Um I don't want to call it trauma pornography, but it's a way for Annie to exhibit her personal traumas and to constantly relive them and for her viewers to relive them. And that's so disturbing to me. But that's also what horror I mean, is as a genre. There, there's a cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I think is interesting is the way that Annie herself phrases um, her art. And the, the scene in particular is when Steve comes into the room. And I love Steve in that scene, by the way, where he's just like, you know, I made the dinner. Come down or don't. I don't give a shit. It's like he's done with her at that moment. And she is just wrapped up in her own little world. But she is making a... Uh, diorama what's the word i'm looking for he, she's making a diorama of yeah. the car crash with 
with uh, Charlie's head on the ground. And she says it's an objective look at the scene. And that is kind of telling to how she perceives reality. But the thing is, uh. when you look at the collection of her work, um, the kind of collection she's mm-hmm. putting together for the for the gallery showing, um, you see all these scenes are focused around her life. And this is kind of like the – it's the trick to journalism. It's the trick to documentary filmmaking is that, yes, you can show the objective truth. But by cho- by filtering it at all through a human mind, through any kind of editorial process, you choose what you deem to be significant and you alter the content of the story. And the scenes in her life she chooses to portray are traumatic and centered and, like, uh, so much of it involves her mother. She's, like, th- we see a preschool and we don't know what the context of the preschool is, but we also see hospice care. We see her mother's funeral. We see she makes her fucking daughter's yeah. decapitation. So it seems to me that she is just strip mining her own soul yeah. for suffering and just documenting that for the world. And I guess if that's oh, what you want to do yeah. as an artist, I can't tell you that's the wrong thing to do, but I find it somewhat simplistic and more daring to the point of being self-harmful than actually saying something new. Um, I would compare it to somebody who constantly picks at a wound until it bleeds and then doesn't allow for it to heal. But I think, too, that, you know, there's something weirdly hypocritical about even us looking at this and saying, like, you know, mining her past for trauma. When anybody who is an artist will tell you, like, there's a certain amount of yourself that you put into your work. But what I think is different with her work is that it's extremely centered around herself and her own perception. So, Doc, um, at the point that you're making about objectivity, I really like because when she says objective, she's looking downward with her own gaze at the scene that she's made. Um, She kind of puts herself into this sort of like eye of God position which I think is really interesting, too. Like, she's overlooking the scene, surveilling it, and, you know, it's an attempt to, to grapple with what's happened and to gain knowledge from it. But there's some stuff that you will never fully understand. You can't articulate what the trauma is. So I think that's part of the reason why, during that scene where she goes to this sort of, like, trauma counseling group, uh, she can't, she doesn't, able to articulate what's going on with her family and herself uh it all kind of comes out in the stream of consciousness monologue because it's hard to narrate your trauma and she's trying to grapple with it it's yeah it's disturbing and it's complicated and ah and that's the thing about her art that is just so fascinating is that it really works from the you know the storytelling and narrative wise of Again, I said everything that you need to know the plot, you're shown, whereas everything you need to know the characters, you're told and hear about and learn. Um, and Annie's art, it you know, it serves as the unsettling you know set piece that we use to cut in and out of reality, but it also is a wonderful way of explaining the heavy, weird, dark shit that's happened in her past. 
in like the unconventional things of, you know, we we learn that, you know, via the diorama that Annie's mother used to watch her sleep at night. And suddenly this detail becomes doubly relevant when Annie explains that, yes, she herself was a sleepwalker and has done some really messed up things while, you know, out. And everything comes into play. And then the recontextualization of like, you know, she insisted that you were the only one that she was the only one who got to feed you. You think it's one thing and then you're presented with the visual image because of, you know, because of Annie's interpretation that what she's presenting is the objective truth in these little dioramas. It's like, oh, shit. That's what she meant. And it's also a, it's a, they, her houses serve as a window into her own soul and how she sees herself and her family. And it's, it, it serves as a set piece of like for, not as a set piece, it serves as a tool for, you know, re, for re, us recontextualizing her all the time. Because, you know, as she can, she slowly loses sympathy as she becomes more and more not erratic, but we see the part of her that was always there. We just didn't think we didn't want to see it because she's our main character. Yeah, Um, I do want to clarify one thing real fast here while we're on the subject is I do think that this is a brilliant narrative device and it's very clever, right? And it is a I think a tribute to the strength of the performance that we are discussing Annie like a real person that we can engage with her artwork like this, because I I don't want it to sound like we're being critical. It's like, like, like we're ragging on Tony Collette or that we're condemning this film in some way. It's brilliant. And like, that's the other thing is it's realistic. This is not a real artist. We are critiquing. This is an artist constructed by the director and writer, you know, our, uh, I, I believe Ari Aster was the writer and director, correct? Yeah, it's his film. So, but also from the performance from Tony Collette. So it is extremely well realized. And the fact that it holds up to this kind of scrutiny where we can engage with it on this level, I think does commend it as a brilliant piece of art. And I want to be clear about that because while we, 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 it's easy for us to get lost in this discussion without clarifying that initial angle, I think. Yeah, yeah. It is all made up, and yet also, again, very rooted in reality. There are a ton of contemporary artists who do dioramas. Uh, Joe Fig and Curtis Talwas Santiago are the two people that I can think of. Um, Fig's work is more about the artists themselves. Like, he does little dioramas of artists in their studios, and then Curtis Talwas Santiago's work is about trauma. They're very small dioramas um, that are often meditating on the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade, as well as other subjects. Like sometimes they're humorous, sometimes they're not. Um, So that's why I also said that, you know, like her work is very self-centered. And there's also and there's also a Mark Hogan camp who was jumped into like 2000 or something, and he processed a lot of his Grief, but also, like, I I think there were some memory loss issues, and he created a lot of these dioramas of soldiers in, I don't know that specifically World War I or World War II, but he creates these dioramas of soldiers in combat situations, and those are so visually striking and powerful that they are surprisingly often co-opted by people, like, posting pictures of them as, like, this is what real bravery looked like, you know, like, thinking that they're actual war photographs. 
Um, that reminds me of the Bioshock Infinite mm. mural of yeah. the Founding Fathers founding it <laughs> to fuck over the immigrants and the brown man. And it's like, oh, this is a satire of the religious right. And a couple of yep. months later, wow, us at the religious light really love this fucking picture. We should put so that over everything. Th- this actually does bring me back, though, to something in the film is what I think is kind of fascinating is the closing shot. Because in the closing shot, we are presented the treehouse and the ritual and the final speech, Paimon and his flock. And we are presented them as a dollhouse. Uh, and I think in that moment, and tell me if you guys think I'm like off the fucking wall on this one, but we as an audience are presented that this is us closing the book it is now that we have now that we have gone through the grief and the trauma and we've taken this entire narrative experience. Now we can put it in a box and you can put it away. We're done here. Yeah, I don't see it that way. I actually found that final shot profoundly disturbing because of the implications of it, right? Did Annie make this? Uh, When did she make this? Did she make it while she was conscious or unconscious? Does she ever make her work when she is sleepwalking? I, there's a lot of questions that it opens up and I can't answer them and it's weird. Yeah. Okay. See, that's not an angle I thought of. I can't can't necessarily say I got the same feeling from it, but that final shot did make me appreciate, like, the levels of... That final shot did make me appreciate the sheer amount of design that went into building this entire film, because throughout the film, the triangle is a central motif that without ever explaining it and it's not until the final shot where we're zooming out of this scene that's a triangle and it all comes together it's like this is why i think this movie is going to last a million years because it like it's making me think of hellraiser where just the box the square keeps coming up in weird and interesting ways like he sets the candles you know when he's trying to open up the puzzle box he sets candles around him but not in a circle okay it's in a square and like this there's so many triangles all over the film and every single one of them is so, connected to something so Annie, dark. i'm actually i'm having some thoughts in response to how you say things because i don't think that it is a literal miniature in the house and i have a couple reasons for thinking that first of all our one of our first shots is we see the treehouse that is actually our opening shot is we see the treehouse through the window and we see it within a frame, so it feels like an image for a second. But then we pan over, and we see the dollhouse, and we zoom in on the room, and it's Peter's room, and we cut to... We don't cut to. It's like, it's this seamless cut. It's kind of wonderful. And it's Peter's room. So we start by going in on a model, and we end the film by coming out of a model. But also, even in that one scene where we do have a transition from the model to the literal uh, world, in that scene, we have a environmental context around it. In the final shot, the temple, the treehouse, it is a void. It is in a void. It is not surrounded by any room. There is no context to it. It's not at the gallery. It's not in the workshop. It's in perfect darkness. The other thing is we don't see the treehouse portrayed in the rest of her artwork. And I think it's interesting because that seems to be outside of her realm. 
it's I, I would guess as a treehouse it's built for the children but it's not a part of her significant life event she never portrays anyone in it or herself in it or anything even though she spends so much time there after the death of her daughter sleeping up there so i feel like it exists outside of the scope of her art but what if yeah. what what if the audience was part of the film you know, it, it feels a little pretentious, but I don't think it's too far off base here to say that not we, it, it does almost highlight the fact that this reality that we're so engrossed in, that we have this visceral reaction to, is constructed. None of these people are real. None of these stories are real. They're based in some very real things, but they're being evoked in us. They're not real. So ultimately, what Ari Aster is doing is playing with dolls. And at the beginning of the film, he invites us into his dollhouse. And at the end of the film... We take a step back and we see it. And you also have to tie that into all the use of tilt photography. We see the house as a dollhouse with real photography multiple times. We see the external world as being small and miniature. And I don't, I think it's one of those like layers of framing or narrative kind of conceits that does not actually influence the film in the narrative sense, but it is a filter through which to view the film. Yes, definitely. I mean, Annie, you, while we're talking about she was mining her, or Annie and Doc, they were saying that she was mining her, you know, past for trauma to share with the world. And, you know, like, when we keep this frame in mind that we're, as a matter of fact, mining her present trauma, and we are, as an audience, complicit. Okay. Um, so... Uh, two things I want to bring up, uh, because I think we are coming up on time a little bit here. Um, one, uh, I actually love the details. This is actually a very detail-oriented film. I'm reminded a little bit of Terminator 2 in how the details actually really inform a lot of what happens. Uh, because here's actually one of my favorite details. Um, the cult fails multiple times over the course of the film. Uh, they failed to predict... Uh, the. They failed to. They failed to get Peter the first time. They failed to correctly predict Charlie's gender. Um, their grandma wanted a boy, but also there is an embroidered pillow or doormat, floor mat or whatever that is that says Charles. So that not only that though, but we see them actively fail in a modern present day attempt to influence things. Because here's a shot that I thought stood out and that I kind of forgot about and I thought didn't make any sense in the first viewing of the film is when the pamphlet for the seance is slid into the mailbox. Because that scene is so slow, is step, 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 push and slide, step, step, step away. And it's it's pushed in there after the rest of the mail. So what this implies is that someone, presumably Joan, but it could be someone else, I think probably not Joan, just to keep it anonymous in case someone answered the door, went in there after mail delivery and put it there. So Joan meeting her in the uh, parking lot and taking her to a personal seance, that was not plan A. That was plan B. Because she was not naturally curious enough to go to the seance. Because the seance was also shaped in such a way to, like, present maximum... Like, it's appealing to skepticism, right? It's de That's designed for someone who does not believe in these things. Th that is not, I think, your typical brochure for this kind of thing. So this was targeted. 
That whole open seance, I think, was definitely put on just for Annie's benefit, and she never answered that call. This is a thing I've noticed in a whole bunch of demon, de- you know, demon summoning possession movies, and it all ends up, it's all a long magic trick. It's a con, it's all about misdirection. And I think over the course of this podcast, you know, this final line of inquiry has revealed to me, like, the con of the movie. And they, you know, like the best con, they show you how they're going to do the trick without you realizing it. And, and this is that discussion during the first day of class when Peter is checking out the girl in front of him's very flat ass. Um, they're discussing either the story of Heracles or something about Pericles. I'm not really good with those consonant sounds. It's about, okay, all about Heracles. And the teacher asks, is it worse if the characters had choices to get where they are or if it was bound by fate to happen? And throughout this entire film and even the title of the movie itself, Hereditary, it makes it sound as if this is all inevitable, this was them out of control, we're just commenting it on ourselves. However, with, you know, Doc, by you saying that, yeah, they fail at this, it makes you realize that there's a strong possibility possibility that none of this actually worked as they intended. That all of this was, it appears in the out front to have been, there's no way you could have prevented this. And especially since they do some really heinous shit, including animate headless corpses and use magic to make sure a girl dies in a certain way. Like, they they succeeded a lot, but the fact that they almost fucked it up in so many other ways, and it's all there for you to see and to pay attention to and note that this is the acts of men, not those who are blessed with sight unseen, you know? That this could have just all been fucked up because people just, like, you know, because Susan had to go to the toilet longer, and so she missed her cue, you know? And it's just... That's that's possibly one of the cons, you know, but like it sets you up for thinking one thing will be important when in reality it was, you know, it showed you exactly where everything was going to go. You were just looking at the other hand. And this one, that might be it that, yes, this was not all hereditary. It just looks like it. And looking looking at this uh one thing you said that I think struck a chord with me with regards to this film is that you were looking in the wrong place. And I know that's not the exact phrasing you used, but that is one thing that we're trained to do very early in this film is that we're kind of trained to watch the entire screen. And there are some brilliant scenes. Now, here's a question for you guys. Um, well, actually, uh, just I want to highlight a scene first. Uh, when Peter is in the basement and he's kind of freaking out at his dad's dead body and you see Annie up in the corner behind him and she's out of focus... I love that scene because he's giving such a powerful performance at that exact moment, and my eyes are transfixed on him, but I know she's there, and I keep darting my eye over there to make sure she's not moving without me seeing. And I, I love that tension. But here's my question for you guys. Did you guys see her in the other corner before that? In Peter's room? Well, here's the thing. You noticed her, but you didn't see her. Yeah, no. If you look in the top left corner of the screen, she is there that entire scene before she wall crawls out. And here's the thing, though. The lighting is so dark 
that you can't actually see her. You can just see a slight disruption to the pattern. It's like when you see the mother at the beginning of the film, but way darker. And this actually reminds me of an issue that apparently has been coming out when people have been talking about Solo, is that with the advent of digital projectors, people haven't been being as stringent with the calibration of their projectors and so on. So when you get these dark, low-light, um, kind of low-contrast scenes, uh, some projectors and some film-going experiences are polluted to a certain degree. Um, so I don't... It's With how much happens in the darkness in this movie, it's hard to say how much of it we were supposed to see, but that was definitely there. And seeing her the whole time, that's, like... I, I love that because it, it, it feels like a very old, like, almost Lovecraftian kind of horror where you know something is there, but you are incapable of focusing your eyes upon it. It's like how shadow men are creepy as shit. Because part of the mythos is that you can't see them. Yeah, and I think what's also kind of cool now that you've brought this up, uh, that's reminding me again of her art and this supposed objective view that's coming from this kind of uh, the bird's eye view where you're looking down and surveilling <laughs> Oh, and when she's possessed, she's always on the ceiling? That's what she's quite literally <laughs> doing in those scenes. Like, that is pretty oh, freaking remarkable. Oh, Annie, why? Both of um, you, both Annie's. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I know, my name is ruined uh, now. Thanks, Ari Aster. God damn oh, it. Oh, you want to know what's a great made. deal? First of all, we, we never <laughs> so even really covered the decapitation <laughs> metaphor, and I think we just want to go over that quickly because this is one of those things that we want to cover. Is, um, so, just okay, briefly, so yeah. here's the thing about decapitation. And Annie, I think you might have had slightly different thoughts on this, but I just want to cover my version of events yeah. first. Um decapitation is the ultimate form of depersonalization because our view of a person primarily resonates through our face uh if you have a headless corpse you have a much more difficult time identifying it you can say that oh this person was male or female they were tall they were strong or they were fat they were you know you can tell these things but you can't say that you can't say that a headless corpse looked kind or that it looked angry it's just a body without a head a body is a functional object and by removing a personality, you may affix, you, you, you turn this body in this demonic kind of metaphor that we've got going on. You turn it into a vessel that is ready to receive a new personality or a new setting. It's a vessel that will be filled. And the metaphor is driven even further home, though, by Charlie's dolls. And now at first you might go, oh, you know, Charlie's just making dolls because she's imitating her mother. But there is sinister purpose to it. First of all, there's this very, like, rural rituals feeling to her little workshop. There's a lot of branches and stuff. But the other thing is the bodies are always vessels. They're always pill bottles. They're little Coke bottles, jars, toys with pop tops, anything that they do there. And she fixes the bird on one. And you see that in Joan's, you, you see that in Joan's apartment after Annie goes and she can't get in. But the other thing that you see is there are two more of Charlie's dolls there, and they have no heads. They are empty vessels lying prostrate before the Bird King. It's really hard to catch. I could not catch that on my first viewing. I was too distracted by the triangle with Peter's face in it and, like, how strikingly it was carved into the table. No, they don't have heads because they're empty vessels. And when you look at Grandma and Annie at the end of the film, they also, they, they, not only are they positioned in that prostrate thing, but they turn to face Paymon. Stop. They actually this swivel movie in place. Better. And you don't see or hear it happen. So everything is just connected. It, and it's a central metaphor. This is why we spend so much time, I think, with Charlie's body and not with her head. Um, her head is there because after she's dead, her head is almost irrelevant. 
I don't know. I think... Okay, so if we're going to go with the whole decapitation thing as a metaphor for depersonalization and, like, the destruction of identity, which I totally agree with, um, because it's, you know, that whole id-ego thing. The ego's located in the head to a certain extent. Um, the Charlie's head represents something which we deeply, deeply fear. We deeply fear the disfigurement of our faces. Yes. It is, I'd say, one of the most base fears that most human beings have. We fear any kind of facial deformity. Uh, that's why we have the word deformity, literally something that has not formed right, suggesting that there is a norm. Um, and then also the idea of uh, this headless corpse and decapitation in general is a scary uh, form of capital punishment or accident. In part because we know that people are conscious. They're usually after being decapitated for up to a full minute after it. So that's scary. And also within this movie in particular, it's by removing the heads of these characters, they can't do what they do in the film, not just necessarily the fiction of the world, but how we see faces in hereditary. And it's so many up close shots in which we see the person's true feelings and like such complex feelings that, you know, we're debating what Annie's final gaze was, you know, and like so much of this movie is mugging and these characters in particular are that's taken away from them. And it's insane. Okay. So two things I want to clarify. Uh, one, I, I did kind of get excited to things, and I think irrelevant might have been the wrong word to use there. Um, but I think while it is important for the story, it becomes unimportant to the characters. And I think one of the things also is um, when Charlie dies, we don't get to see it. And I mean that in more ways than one. But And actually, we don't get to see anyone die except maybe Steve, but we, her body is still part of the story. But we don't get to see the life leave her eyes. You know, we don't get to see any kind of perspective of hers from her death. We just have the thunk, and then she is out of the picture for a good 10 minutes. And, you know, she, she comes back to haunt us and all that. And Paymont. But the other thing I think is fascinating is how the guillotine works in fiction. Because the other thing that happens is when you separate a head from a body... Not only does the body become an object, but so does the head. When you see a severed head in fiction, and I'm not going to claim that I have experience seeing severed heads, or that anyone on the podcast or anyone listening does, but in fiction, in media, when we see a severed head, we do not associate it as being a person. We associate it as being a person's head. Um, unless you have a character that is a talking head, then that's a slightly different situation. There you go. But... I, I can think of. I think don't wasn't when the, wasn't the last guillotine still operating when Star Wars was in yes. theaters. So yes. I think there is there is the last actual execution took place during World War II though. Yes, but I do. I correct think. me if I'm wrong. Is there actual though archival historical footage of uh, guillotine beheading? I feel like there is. Oh yeah, because there that is, is one thing that I, I find think. interesting is that I, I think I might have seen. I don't know. Because, like, you know, it also could be something from a movie that 
portends to be historical or something. I don't know, and it's not clear in my mind. But th that is something that is kind of acceptable. It's not seen as being that horrific, particularly with you know the guillotine being a purported instrument of justice and execution and state violence and a bunch of complexity there. But seeing a person beheaded is something that was a public spectacle. It's something that is... The depersonalization is so immediate that, you know, there's... Like, you know, the head just falls into a basket. That's an aspect that we all know about the guillotine exhibition. So when the head is gone, when you remove the head from the body, not only do you prepare the vessel, but also in a way you kind of destroy the personhood. Because the other key piece of imagery, I think, in this film is the funeral. Because we start with um, Grandma's funeral. And Grandma is at peace in her yes. coffin. Yeah. You know, uh, Charlie draws her. But Charlie has a closed casket. And we never see Annie's head after she saws it off. So, and, you know, and once uh, Charlie cuts the head off the bird, it's no longer a bird. It's this proper totem that she carries mm -hmm. around and eventually makes into a doll. When she draws, she because she draws other animals and they have complete bodies. But when she draws the Pigeon King, it's ju she just draws mm -hmm. the head. Is it becomes like heraldry? It becomes a symbol. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that's a good point to end on. Um, as always, I am Paymon. He'll Paymon. <laughs> no, um, this has been the Movie Morgue, your premier movie autopsy podcast. I've been your host, Sylvia Emery. You guys can find me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD. And I'm Annie, and you will not find me on your ceiling tonight, but you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Lights and Music. And I'm Mateo. You can find me at your local Joanne's Fabric, just milling about the parking <laughs> lot. Also, I'm on Twitter at, <laughs> at Spook Show Cinema. No spacing on that one. And sometimes I write things at Dorkly, and sometimes I write things at Nightmare on Film Street Podcast. Look which at you. is another fun podcast that you should listen to. It is pretty dope. Yeah, you should give it a listen. Um, our intro music, as always, is Trouble by Ipso Factibus. You can find a link to their Bandcamp in the description. Uh, feel free to follow us on uh, iTunes. Give us a review there. It really helps us out. Uh, feel free to join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash moviemorgpodcast, I believe is the URL. All of this will be in the show notes. Mm -hmm. We have a discussion group. We talk about these things. It's a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your support. Uh, we love you all. And um, hail Paymon. Hail Paymon. Uh, Say it, Annie. No, I'm not saying it. Say it. No. <laughs> Say it. <laughs> Okay, Julia Child. <laughs> <laughs>